Hello, Pete and Gav. Thanks very much for joining us on our podcast and not yours. So it's great to have both of you on here. Um, what we're going to talk about today is just the bizarre ways that we choose to measure our economy and specifically measure the success of our economy. So it'd be brilliant to hear your thoughts on that. I guess the main way we, we or the main thing that's used to measure most economies is GDP, gross domestic product. Um, and in some respects, I'm going to speak uh, in favour of it, first of all, because before we had GDP or some sense that the size of an economy can be measured by what it produces, I guess before that, if you go back to sort of before Adam Smith and so on, um, you're looking at the success of an economy being measured by how much you can loot from your neighbours, in effect. So you, in some respects, measuring an economy by what it produces is probably a good thing compared with what preceded it. Um, the modern measure of GDP was developed by a guy called Simon Kuznets in the 1930s, but he very quickly said, whatever you do, don't use this to measure the well-being of an economy. And almost immediately afterwards, he was completely ignored. <laughs> so, uh, so in some respects, it's kind of interesting to look at what is in GDP and what is not in GDP, because first and foremost, it's probably not even particularly an accurate measure of what it purports to um, show. I mean, it's supposed to demonstrate the volume or the value of economic activity in a country in a year. But there's lots of stuff which just simply isn't in there. So, for example, if a country has a sizable black market, that's not going to be in there. And that will constitute a large amount of economic activity in some countries. Even in the UK, it's estimated that that's about 10% of GDP. Uh, the cannabis trade alone is supposed to be about 2.5 billion. So if that could be taxed, I suspect that would be a fairly sizable source of tax income. Um, but again, another sort of um, big body blow to GDP is how it treats sort of environmental resources. Uh, because if you, if just to give one example, if you looked at um, sort of some river pollution, where I was growing up, I grew up in a sort of small town just north of Manchester, uh, and there was a, a river at the back of uh, near where we lived that occasionally ran sort of running with foam, and not because the water was particularly sort of choppy. Mm -hmm. It was uh, basically stuff uh, which had been released from a local chemical factory. Now, GDP would include all the economic activity of that um factory without any allowance for the fact the river's been polluted but it would also let's say someone did subsequently uh, sort of clean up that river that would also be included in gdp so i mean that's a sort of slightly sort of odd and perverse uh sort of measure from that point of view uh, another good example of something which might not be in there um and this is a big deal for particularly many developing countries is sort of subsistence agriculture. If you produce just to feed yourself because it never reaches at any market, that will not be included in a GDP figure. So on a smaller scale, uh, let's say uh, yourself, William or Kyron, you, you've got an allotment. Has either of you got an allotment? No, but if, not, if you not, many, not many in Barcelona, not many allotments in Barcelona. All right. Okay. Which is where I am. Okay. There's probably more in Aberdeen, I reckon. <laughs> some down the road yeah yeah <laughs> but if you did if you did and you produced all this wonderful produce and consumed it yourself and it's also probably giving you an enormous amount of well-being in the production of it um it won't be including gdp um similarly let's imagine for the sake of argument i know it's a dream of gavs to run his own cafe uh sort of slow food cafe at some point in the future when teaching has exhausted him uh completely <laughs> Um, but let's say he, he's run a, run a good 60-hour week in his cafe and he decides to sort of take, you know, the evening off um, 
uh, to go out for dinner with his lovely wife. You know, at that point, GDP would actually go down, whereas Gavin's well-being uh, would probably go up. So there's lots of sort of perverse inclusions and exclusions uh, in GDP. Do you want to add anything to that, Gav? No, no, I thought that was very good. Of course, the, yeah. the other important thing that doesn't get included is care work. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, un unpaid care work, you know, pe people who might have elderly or disabled relatives living with them, um, none of that would be included in GDP. There's a really good Bobby Kennedy speech on YouTube yeah. sort of, as part of his presidential campaign where he talks even back then in the late 60s about the sort of poverty of GDP as a, as a measure of a nation's well-being. I'd really recommend that to anyone. I, mean, he's I think it's 1968 he makes that he made that speech and it is, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful and you're, yeah. you're reading and thinking is this really someone who's trying to be the American president? It's, it's, it's very powerful that speech. We'll put a link in the comments to it. And um, that's really helpful when we're thinking about this idea of GDP. Now um, famously there was a heckler in Newcastle before the Brexit referendum uh, and they were heckling an economist and they shouted out, that's your bloody GDP, not ours. And I imagine we could speak for another 20 minutes on GDP without summing up uh, as well as that. I think it was a lady who shouted that out. Um, yeah. But can you explain why someone would think um, that the GDP was completely separate from, from them? And, and what does this point to in, in terms of inequality? So in a sense, I guess what they might be driving at is even though the economy has grown, because it's always about growth with GDP, you know, has the economy grown? Is, is the pie bigger, if you like, uh, from one year to the next? But it would be very, uh, you know, if you looked at the northeast of England, for example, um, certainly since 2007, just before the financial crisis, it's, it's probably... And it's hard to sort of estimate the impacts of COVID subsequent to that, but it's probably just about crept back up to, um, you know, pre-2007 levels, the Northeast economy. And yet, um, but the pie overall has got bigger, you know, GDP is bigger, but there's people in you know, large sort of swathes of the country and sort of, you know, the different devolved sort of areas of the country, which haven't really seen any of that growth or certainly not in terms of, um, their wages, you know, real wages have been stagnant, and the, the proportion of your of the pie, if you like, which has gone to the very wealthy in the UK, has only increased sort of during that period. So you could see why it's almost like you know that's your your bloody pie, as it were. <laughs> we're not getting any of it, so uh, uh, big deal if it goes down. And, and mm. you can see that in the Brexit vote, in, in my view, you know that you know everyone's talking about the economic doom and gloom, but people in certain parts of the country well it's not great for us anyway thank you very much and a bit sort of what 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 relevance is that is that to me so i guess that's what i would take take from it that's what i think was at the heart of that comment was well we're not seeing any of this growth and and again gdp gdp talks about the nation and there's this idea that if you divide the 60 odd million people in this country into gdp then you all get your your amount um, and I think that's what it tries to portray, but actually that's clearly not not true. And that that GDP, even if it grows or shrinks, there's still people who are doing considerably better than than others in the economy. And and, and there's no way of measuring that um, within that uh, GDP or, or or GNP figure. No, I mean they they do try to sort of. I mean, if you looked in very raw terms, of course, you know China's GDP or GNP, whatever measure of national income you use, would be. You know many times bigger than the uk's but so obviously there is a division to give it gdp per capita but that's still 
um, doesn't account for the distribution of the pie, if you like. It could be that one person is eating two-thirds of this massive pie and the rest of us have got a tiny little sliver each. And certainly, you know, inequality has grown sort of quite significantly in the last sort of 10 to 20 years. I say it's grown significantly. I mean, if you take a much longer sort of historical perspective, it, you know, the 19th century was, was awful for inequality, you know, much, much worse than, you know, the 20th century. But it's definitely crept up uh, in the last 20 years. And um, and I think that's left a lot of people feeling sort of left behind. And that's, I guess, my view on, on, on the Brexit vote, if that's not sort of too patronising for the people who, who, did, who did vote for Brexit. With Scotland as well, you know, I think they're... they're uh, you know, growth has, has gone up a bit beyond 2007, but nothing like the growth of London, for example. I was just going to say, post-COVID as well, you can see there was all this kind of discussion about um, how the recovery was going to happen. Was it going to be a V-shaped recovery and things like that? And then suddenly from nowhere, you know, um, the K recovery came from, you know, and what's the K recovery? It's the rich recovering very fast and the poor still slumping. I mean, that, that kind of basically tells us everything, you know, about where we are at this current moment in time. Yeah, and the UK economy is designed to do that. We can't be surprised that the returns are going to uh, going to capital and not to labour because that's the way that the UK economy is structured. So uh, I think the idea of a V for everyone um, was unlikely to happen. And I love that image of the K recovery. I think that works really well. Yeah. Uh, we spoke a little bit about inequality. And uh, within an economy, there, there's um, something that we use to measure inequality. I, I'd like you guys, if you could just to talk a little bit about that. It's the Gini coefficient. And also maybe talk about the kind of pros and cons in the, in the way that you did in uh, uh, GDP. This is Pete's bag as well. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to bloody say something else, you? Yeah, all right. Um, so um, the Gini coefficient is actually one of a number of um, sort of measures of inequality. There are others like the sort of Palmer ratio and so on, but Gini is probably the most commonly used. Um, for years, I thought it was some kind of acronym, G-I-N-I, uh, but it is actually developed by a, an Italian economist called Corrado uh, Gini. Um it's also you can also represent a Gini sort of coefficient in a, in a in a curve, the Lorenz curve. And if you imagine like a, a rectangle with a line going up from sort of left to left to right, sort of bisecting uh, the rectangle, you then draw a sort of curved line. That, that that line is what's called the line of perfect equality. So let's say going back to my analogy of a pie, if everyone had an equally sliced slice uh, of the pie, then you would have. Um, a Gini coefficient of, of zero, and you would be sitting on that line of equality. If you've got any any inequality whatsoever in an economy, then you would see a little sort of, a bit like a bow in a bow and arrow, you know, beneath that um, line of equality. Um, and then that, the, the further, the more bowed, if you like, that curve, the more unequal the, uh, the country. And, and the Gini coefficient is a is a ratio between two areas in, in that sort of uh, Lorenz curve. But in very, very simple terms, um, the closer the figure is to zero, the more equal the society. Uh, the, the closer it is to one, the less equal the society. So it can be reduced to either a decimal fraction or, or, or a percentage. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite useful in terms of being able to compare uh, different economies, but also the same economy over time as well. And going back to what I was saying about, you know, the 19th century, like the, the sort of era of some of the, you know, the great economists like Marx and Ricardo and so on. 
you would have been looking at uh, Gini coefficients of, of much higher rates than now uh, currently. Uh, I think the UK's is about 0.33, something like that. Um, a country like um, uh, some developing countries like South Africa, Brazil, they would have much higher rates of inequality than, than we do. I mean, the developed world generally would have um, uh, lower rates of income inequality, but within that, there would be some quite considerable variations. So Scandinavian countries would tend to have much lower gene coefficients and uh, somewhere like the US would have a, you know, a higher Gini coefficient. Still lower than those developing countries I mentioned, but definitely more unequal. And I suppose what is also interesting is to look at the trends there, which are definitely moving towards, you know, not quite 19th century levels, but certainly the highest rates, you know, for, for quite some time. Uh, and secondly, one thing that isn't often discussed is wealth inequality, uh, which is, you know, that we always talk about this. And I think even on some websites I, I was looking at where you, when you talk about GDP, there's often confusion between wealth and income. You know, wealth is what you own. Income is what you earn. And in some respects, there's even greater levels of inequality in the UK with respect to wealth and with respect to income. And obviously from wealth, you can derive an income as well. Um, Mm-hmm. And that, in some respects, I would argue is is a much greater problem or, you know, it is at least as great a problem and something which really I don't think any political party has got a plan for. You know, how are we going to deal with wealth inequality? You know, there's been talk of sort of mansion taxes and things like that, but there's nothing really come close to uh, any form of, you know, actual policy on the ground. Similarly, the the UK economy is designed to do that with the amount of privatisation that that has taken place over the last 40 years and the shifting from um, the shifting from the the relative wealth of the commons to privatise an individual wealth. So I think that wealth inequality is baked in um, to the UK. And with Scottish independence, we hope that we're able to look at that in a slightly in a slightly different way. You know, we spoke about the Gini coefficient, and um, there's there's certainly an idea that. And it's kind of doing the rounds, which I would say this is this idea of uh, measuring happiness. And people often quote, actually misquote and say that New Zealand is now using that as their official measurement. And that's not actually true. The New Zealand use GDP like everyone else is their official measurement. But they are open and talking about this idea of measuring the happiness. Um, have you guys um, got any thoughts on, on that as a way to measure an economy? Um, yeah, I, well, I mean, in 2010, David Cameron said he, he was going to start measuring uh, kind of happiness in terms of well-being. So you can, if you want to, uh, go onto the ONS website and check out what the latest data is on well-being. They don't publish it that much, I think, especially at the moment because it's all going down. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, that that's kind of what they're trying to do. But a lot of the time it's um, based on kind of surveys, isn't it, in terms of like how, you know, how do you feel today and, you know, how did you feel last week or, or whatever. So it's kind of quite tricky sometimes to... To, to, to measure that uh, and and from a, a behavioral kind of economics point of view it, 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 it we kind of appreciate the fact that if you've had a suddenly something nice happens to you on that day you're like yeah I'm really happy and and you don't kind of reflect on on the broader aspects of it but I mean it's obviously a, a good idea because you know there's this kind of idea that, that was brought up by Richard Eastlin the Eastern in paradox which is you know this idea that when you earn a certain amount of income you, you kind of happiness plateaus you know and and so therefore and I think this has happened since about the 70s in the UK 
So we're getting richer and richer, apparently, but we're not getting any kind of happier. So therefore, if we've got that disconnect, we need to start thinking about how we can go around kind of changing that. And, um, you know, maybe redistribution is, is kind of one way of going around doing it or, or, or just reconnecting, you know, the, the idea of having maybe, you know, a four day working week so you could spend more time with your family or, you know, so, you know, universal base income, maybe, you know, it's something that makes you feel like you can do your hobbies a bit more or write poetry, whatever you want to do to bring about your kind of happiness. Uh, but, I mean, it is something that obviously they've they've tried to do, and there is uh, kind of other indexes that have tried to bring that into to account. So, one of the ones that we kind of look at at school is is the Happy Planet Index, which was put together by the the New Economics Foundation, mm -hmm. which kind of wanted to include that as well as including um, kind of a carbon footprint and, and and things like that. And Costa Rica at the top of it. Um, so it is quite interesting to see that the world is kind of changing a bit and kind of accepting that. And obviously we know about Bhutan as well, who, who kind of have that as a, a singular focus uh, to, to, to thinking about the, the, the well-being of their, their population. I mean, just yeah. to go back, I think what you said about New Zealand, I, I do think they had some sort of um, thing in their fiscal policy whereby when budgetary items were put forward, they had to sort of... Um, you know, the, the debate or discuss what impacts it would have on well-being rather than what impact would it have on growth. So even though I think GDP is the measure, it, it was like almost in the the systems of how fiscal policy was conducted. I think they they worked in there. Some there had to be some consideration of well-being. I think two key thinkers, which you, your listeners might want to look out for. You know, Professor Richard Layard has done a lot of work on sort of different indicators which could be used to. And I think he, he influenced the stuff which is on the ONS website, didn't he? Um, um, so that, that's one to look, uh, look out for, I think. Uh, the Eastland paradox is really interesting as well because apparently some of one's uh, happiness is derived from where you are in the pecking order in your country, which is slightly depressing. <laughs> so even if you know the whole country isn't necessarily getting uh, much richer, as long as you're okay relative to other people, apparently that improves one's well-being which isn't uh, the most gratifying of messages um but it is interesting because you kind of think we do pile on gdp with you know incomes if you think about even from um you know when, when i was a kid the level of material wealth that you know even the average person enjoys is infinitely better than um for most people i think it, but are, are people any happier and the, the whole business of you know saying oh it's all about questionnaires and so on I do take that, but just because something's difficult to measure doesn't mean that we should ignore it because, in a sense, GDP is easy to measure, relatively speaking, and all the things we talked about, like including environmental degradation, um, is really hard. You know, it's really hard to measure it, but just because something's hard to measure, it doesn't make it any less important. And yet, uh, and so why sort of use a target which is easy to measure even though we don't value it uh, rather than something which is hard to measure which we do actually value so in some respects you kind of think well maybe more work should uh, go into yeah. in these sort of measures a bit more objective or more accepted they'll probably never be completely um sort of objective but if you had a kind of like citizens assembly which said okay this is what as a country we think uh, constitutes, you know, meaningful life, um, then, you know, flourishing life, then, you know, then we could look to develop some kind of metrics to measure yeah. that. It's kind of I mean, what Amrita Sen was trying to do, actually, to be fair.
Can I just uh, interject there as well and bring up the point about making the comparison between yourself and other people? I mean, the, the, you know, my background is anatomical sciences, so I'm interested in, the, in health. And Michael Marmot uh, did qu quite a lot of research on this. And uh, of course, you'll probably know about the spirit level. Um, it's mm -hmm. Kate Pickett and Richard Williamson that, that yeah. wrote that. And they, they did about 10 years of research before they published that book. And it's, it's very clear from their separate research that that feeling of you being not doing so well as the people around about you is very toxic society, on a societal mm -hmm. level. Absolutely, yeah. It's a really good book, actually. That uh, spirit level book. We, we recommend it, it, that. In it, is a, it is a good book. And the band James summed it up in their song "Come Come Home." If you haven't seen such riches, you can live with being poor. So there is a book, and there's also a song by James that you can look at. But I think that's really, really important. And that relative, that relative wealth or relative poverty, I think, is really, really important. On, so, on that no, I mean, even that's about money, just generally. We, we're obviously seeing students all the time who feel that, that about their, their gradings. So even when students get a really good grade, if it's not a nine, they are under so much pressure. And it's just sometimes a miserable environment to be in because you, you kind of order that is our life now. If, if you're not getting a nine, you're nothing. And, and that's obviously kind of related to this thing about income. You know, if I, I, you know, everyone wants to be Instagram famous and, and have lots of money because that is where the value comes from nowadays. And that's such a sad place to be at. And nine wow. is the top grade you can get in GCSEs, which is what our 16 year olds do. I would love to ask another question about, about your students, because um, what, what we are often told is that the younger generation are less materialistic and that they're much more interested in experiences and they're less interested in material things, which would obviously completely change the way that we measure our economy and also structure our economy. Um, as two uh, teachers who deal with this generation every day, um, is there any truth to that? Uh, I'd say it's a pretty mixed picture, I would say. A lot of our kids, I think they choose economics partly because they, you know, the kids we particularly spend a lot of time with because they see it probably wrongly actually as a sort of passport to sort of achieving uh, material success. It's a very boy dominated subject and a lot of boys will think this is my passport to, to working in the city. Um, once they hear me and Gav sort of boring on about, oh no, it's actually about resource allocation. You know, they sort of, you can see them sort of, oh no, I'm not gonna. <laughs> make my millions playing the stock market after two years of economics um but i, I don't I'm, I'm eternally optimistic about young people uh, and i i do think you know generally i think that they are positive about the future i think they do value sort of friendships and things like that they're much more liberal i think on a sort of mm. social basis than often people of um sort of my generation would be you know incredibly liberal about all, all manner of sort of social issues which i think still you know people of older generations struggle with but whether they're sort of less materialistic uh, not sure about that <laughs> but maybe that's where we are in we are in the southeast of england you know which is sort of uh, yeah. where all this wealth is being generated and all this gdp is being created and at the exclusion of everyone else in all, in all see, then the level of wealth that you see because i lived in london for eight years the level of wealth for me when i moved down there in my early 20s was astounding. I mean, for me, it was astounding. Um, and and if you're living around that all the time, that is going to be very much a case mm. of, you know, oh my God, I'm nowhere close to that. 
But everyone in London feels poor. Most people do, despite them being on astonishing incomes. And you have to sort of, there's a famous sort of question time. Well, there's one guy who's just like, <laughs> there's a Labour MP on, and he was basically saying that some guy in the audience is saying, I earn 80 grand, and that makes me sort of really this in the, and this guy's, no, that makes you sort of in the top sort of 5% of the country. Yeah. And I was getting red in the face saying, no, that's not true. And he's thinking, I know it really is true. It's, I'd like to that, call out Labour as liars. I am one of them people that he will tax more. And I am nowhere near in the top 5%. So I'm calling you a liar right now. That 5% is a lie. No, I th so hang on, let's just be clear. So, so you're, you're suggesting you would raise income tax on those earning over £80,000. You're saying that would affect you because you earn over that sum? Yes. So you earn over £80,000? Yes, and I'm not in the top 5%. Yes, I think that is the no, top I'm not. 5%, isn't it? I'm not. But that, I, I, you can see how that kind of perception can develop <laughs> if everyone around you is absolutely, you know, or enough people are to make you think, oh, you know, I am here, but you know they're up there, uh, and I think that is the case in, in certainly in, in parts of London. When we're looking at all the ways of measuring the economy, I, I kind of wanted to, to break it down into the simplest form possible, which was it seemed to be that we measure to see if we've grown the economy, and um, if there's growth, that's good, and if there's not growth, that's bad. That seems to be this the kind of most simplest way that we're measuring our economy. Would would you agree? And would you have any kind of issues with that as the base of us measuring the success of our economy and our well-being? It's definitely what we do, without question. I mean, you, you've got all these talking heads. Uh, you know, everyone. I think it's probably across all political parties, perhaps with the honourable exception of the Green Party in, in sort of England, uh, who might say, "Well, what, 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 what's the point in this?" Um, but absolutely. And you've got to remember what is growing. What is growing is the amount of goods and services produced in a country from one year compared with the next year. It's a measure of income. It's not a measure of wealth. So in a sense, it doesn't. And it's certainly not a measure of, sort of you know, that flourishing of, of, of humanity, which you would you, you, you would want it to well, be. Well, that's like it. Kate Rayworth's book. I mean, there's a chapter which is all about being agnostic about growth. So, you know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, again, it depends on, on obviously what you're doing with regards to the resources within your country. And I thought that was an excellent chapter and, mm -hmm. yeah, pretty much with that. I think that agnosticism about growth, it's almost like, well, let's take it back a step. What, what kind of lives do we want people to have? And if growth occurs when we're trying to enable them to achieve those lives, then great. But if it doesn't, who cares? Because they're achieving the lives that they want to achieve. And that's very much... Um, the project of um, Amartya Sen, who we did one of our episodes on, you know, this idea that you know, economic development should be about human flourishing, if you like. He talked about sort of capabilities. You know, if it allows you to do certain things, you know, the development in that country, then that's great. But if it doesn't, it's it's almost a bit pointless. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, his, his book, Development as Freedom, it's. It's not the easiest book in the world to read, but you know the actual burden burden of his argument is, is really really powerful. Um, so again, I'd recommend that. So it's it's, it's really good. Um, and that that actually he he was behind this. Well, I say he was behind. It was actually put into practice by a, another economist, uh, Mabubul Hack, but the Human Development Index, which is a slightly broader measure of. Um, I mean, Sen, you know, the guy I was talking about still i think 
you get the impression thinks that, that in itself was a bit limited, but I think he felt that at least it's broadening the debate beyond simply GDP. Is it bigger? Is it not bigger? So uh, the Human Development Index would include GDP per head, but also um, uh, mean and average years of schooling. So it's, it's almost like a, a three-pillared approach. There's a pillar about education, a pillar about life expectancy, and a pillar which is sort of GDP per capita, which would, I guess, be a proxy for income. And those three things form an, uh, you know, form an index. And again, um, every country in the world, if you like, gets a number in in that sort of relatively simple index so it's trying to broaden at least it you know it might not be a perfect measure again uh, but at least it broadens it beyond simply sort of gdp so you get this sense that actually gdp in itself is a bit worthless but if it allows people to live longer lives which are perhaps more interesting because of the education they've had and the opportunities that brings then that's probably um a better measure if you like yeah, and just building on that as well, I mean, there's also an inequality adjusted HDI. So, you know, they've tried to deal with that issue as well. And I've just mentioned Jason Hickel, and he's now come up with this thing called the Sustainable Development Index, which is basically HDI divided by, uh, I think it's called your kind of uh, eco-overshoot. You know, so where your country is basically, you know, um, yeah, wasted too much resources or whatever. It kind of takes that away from the HDI. So again, there's all this kind of meddling going on at the moment to try and get a better picture and overview of our countries, you know? Mm -hmm. The other measurement I wanted to ask you about as well was the genuine progress indicator. Yeah. Um, do either of you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, it was created in 1995 um, by a, a US-based organization. Um, and it has, I think it says 26 indicators, again, covering social, environmental, and you know human conditions so there's lots of things in it crime you know uh, volunteering so some of the things that we've spoken about are, are in, included in that uh, genuine progress indicator so it's, it's interesting one of the things that i do in in my lessons when we teach economic growth is trying to get um students to come up with their own you know say well how would you measure um you know a country you know would you just stick with gdp or, or what would you do and so you send them off in their little groups and they do their presentations and it's always interesting to come back uh, and they've all got different things because obviously for different people different things matter and the question that you always ask as a teacher for example crimes included in that gpi you'd say how what, what crime are you measuring okay so you're then trying to get down to the bones of the data and then, obviously, this is one of the issues about the GPI, is is it all being recorded in the same way across X amount of countries? So when you're then trying to compare countries, I'm not saying it's, it's worthless, because obviously, again, you want to have this you know, information, and it is quite interesting. It's so difficult. To, I mean, 26 mm -hmm. indicators trying to get that across, I don't know, 160, 180 countries. It's just a, a massive ask. And sometimes the simplicity kind of you know is better but it's obviously it's important to, to get that somewhere in in the um the debate that we're having yeah it's interesting you're saying about i mean obviously that is the big advantage in theory of gdp it's simple people get it you know it's the, it is like it's the five bigger one year to the next but when you actually dig into gdp it does have 
all manner of flaws. Even GDP, is it internationally comparable? I mean, in theory it is, but, you know, one country's got an enormous sort of informal economy and another one doesn't. Um, you've got to do all kinds of shenanigans with, um, you know, like adjust it for purchasing power parity and things like that. So, in, in, in Scotland every year we have something called JERS. I just wonder if either of you have come across um, JERS as a measurement for the Scottish economy and if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I have to admit, not until this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be honest, re reading about it, I mean, it is it is genuinely fascinating. I was, yeah. I was seeing that it was set up by John Major um, in 1992, and it was kind of done at a time when there was low oil prices. So, they, so it was kind of organised and set up to portray Scotland in a really bad light. <laughs> like, it's fascinating. And then there's that bit in there where they... It doesn't get published for a year because they're changing the method methodology of it all. And so it is fa fascinating. And uh, I mean, taking Richard Murphy's kind of thing where he says, was it in the JERS homepage, the primary objective is to estimate a set of public sector accounts of Scotland through detailed analysis of official UK and Scottish government financial statistics, just estimates, you know, so it's all estimations and, you know, well, that's mm. guesstimates, isn't it, ultimately? You know, mm. and, and <laughs> there's a great bit in one of his articles that he wrote about how Westminster can manipulate data at will. Now, I mean, that was done, I think he wrote that three years ago, the, the article. And now we've got a man who has absolutely <laughs> no qualms at all manipulating any data whatsoever. So, I just wonder if either of you have come across um, JERS as a measurement for the Scottish economy, and if you had any thoughts on that. So, I mean, it is. It was. It was. thank you for, for, for putting us onto it in many respects, because it is... No, I didn't, I didn't know it existed, but it's really interesting. One, it's one amazing thing that, to read about. Yeah, one thing that's, that I found really interesting is that, oh, yeah, we put in a value for an estimate of, you know, Scotland's contribution to the national debt, anything, you know. A, how do you do that? You know, how do you, that must be an incredibly arbitrary sort of decision. And B, surely if there was Scottish independence, that would be a major political rather than economic debate, I would think. You know, for me, coming from a science background, from an actual science background, mm -hmm. um, you would, you know, you'd look at, to me, I look at the report and I go, yeah, that's just complete nonsense. You've made a comparison between a country which creates its own currency and a country yeah. that doesn't. And you can't, for a start, make a comparison of those two things no. on a scientific level. It's complete nonsense to try. No, yeah. but there's all kinds of things. You, you, can't, you can't just carve up a bit of an economy and you know easily say, well, this bit of the economy generated that, that bit of income. I think it's quite hard to do for a nation state, let alone sort of... Um, you know, a country which currently doesn't have its own sort of, um, you know, independent fiscal policy and sort of currency, as you said. But um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it was interesting, though. One, I didn't know it existed, but one, the more I read about it, I was thinking, blimey, you know. I think it's just one of the more extreme cases of how, you know, statistics can be sort of manipulated. Um, as you yeah. said, it looks like it's been designed to show a particular um, view of the, of the Scottish economy. But what's really interesting for, for us here in Scotland is that it's produced by the Scottish government and yeah. there's no alternative to this. And every every Jer's Day, which I know you'll be searching the hashtag now, um, it's the end yeah. of August, 
Um, you'll see it dominates the headlines in Scotland in the lead up to, in the day and after. And if you go, these figures are, are banned right across our predominantly unionist supporting media. So it has a huge impact. And, and as Richard Murphy has says, it's based on nothing but bad guesses. But because it says the narrative that the the, the, um, the Conservative government, the establishment, and, and the unionist sporting press say, it gets a huge amount of coverage, and that just won't. And, and when I see that, I think, but are a lot of other measurements of the economy the same? And you know, and that led me to this idea: you know, what is it that, that that GDP actually says, and who's deciding on the types of things that we measure? It's, it's true what you say, though. Question question every bit of data. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about it. Whenever you look, I mean, even something like microloans, which we've just recently looked at, you know, you can make a case on whatever piece of data that you choose. You know, this is the thing is that the manipulation of data is just quite fascinating. So hmm. that's, that's economics. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, well I, I was very lucky to have a good economics teacher in my secondary school, um, and I think it's been clear from us today that your students are really lucky to have to have you as teachers been able to paint uh, the picture of economics um, so well for us. Before you go, I just want to, Kieran will probably laugh, but now that I've brought you into the world of JERS, I would love to send you a link to the Sustainable uh, Growth Commission report for you to look at, because that's another gem of economic analysis of the Scottish economy, which you might find quite amusing. Um, brilliant, Pete and Gav, thanks so much for, for joining us. I uh, feel really lucky to have, to have had you spending this time with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Really thank you very much. We really enjoyed it. Thank Great. you. Nice to meet you. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay.